Well, we're looking this morning at uh, Paul's letters of Romans, and uh, we're going to look at verse 20, and then 28 to 32, and chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, which is an incredibly long portion of Scripture for me. And so, um, but the reason why we're doing it is uh, I think that this really, verse 4 concludes uh, Paul's argument in this section. Verse 20 sets up the argument, so I'm reminding us uh, where he's been going. 28 to 32, he continues his point, and then 2, 1 to 4, he concludes it in, uh, in verse 4 with kindness, and we'll be thinking about that. So let's turn then to God's Word, and we'll begin by reading at verse 20, and then go to verse 28. And uh, then a verse, to verse 4, chapter 2. Let's then hear God's word. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And then chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance? And patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That is God's word. Well, towards the end of her life, she said this I don't want to die. I don't want to die, she said. Her life had been one of unexceptional, mild indifference. It was not clear what she believed about God or Jesus. Oh, oh, she went to church. Oh, yeah. But when you talked to her, she seemed as enthusiastic about, if we're honest, about Eastern meditation as she ever was about the Lord's Prayer. She had never got married, never had children. Too much mess and bother, she felt. Living a life of quiet indifference, watching TV at night, pottering around at weekends, not doing very much at all, she had many excuses for a lack of commitment to God and the fullness of life that Jesus promises for those who fully commit to Him. But when her cancer returned all too suddenly and took her faster than she or anyone else had expected, she was finally awoken to the reality that much of her life 
had been wasted. Excuse after excuse after excuse. I don't want to die, she now said. Well, her case was an extreme example, to be sure. But many people these days, I find, do rationalize a life that is less than it could be in full-orbed commitment to Christ with all that he offers for fullness of life. They make excuses. Too busy, they will say. Too hard. Too expensive. Too much trouble. It is easier, many seem to feel, to go with the flow these days than stand up and be counted for what they believe in. But in so doing, they miss out on what they could be if they could move beyond their excuses. I love the uh, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, fantasy science fiction series. And in, in this series, there's one little illustration that makes this point in a, in a light touch kind of way. There's a spaceship that's employing the latest camouflage technique known as the someone else's problem camouflage, according to Douglas Adams. And the way this, this technique works, this technology works, is that the spaceship is constructed in such a bizarre, ludicrous, fantastical way that anyone who sees it cannot quite believe it exists. And so their mind just assumes that it cannot. It must be someone else's problem. Similarly, it seems to me, the sheer complexities of our world today, the compassion fatigue that we experience when we hear appeal after appeal on television or in chapel for this or that worthy endeavor. It means that some of us simply just give up and we count it all someone else's problem. And so we begin to excuse a life of mild, unexceptional indifference. Well, as attractive as burying your head in the sand is, however, at some point, we all need to realize that there's more to life. And Paul here is trying to help us see that, to realize that the fullness of life is in Jesus. His theme here, this is going to be our theme this morning, is how God's kindness overcomes our excuses. He's trying to lead us to full-orbed commitment to Jesus, how God's kindness overcomes our excuses. Well, first then, our excuses, which, of course, can be numerous, uh, can't they? But in Paul's understanding here, they're really only ultimately divided into two different categories of rationalization. So verse 20, Paul introduces, one, the excuse of the non-religious. But then in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul describes, two, the excuse of the religious, non-religious and religious. The excuse of the non-religious one is that they are saying to themselves that God is really unknowable. Who can possibly really know about him? There's not enough evidence. God is unknowable. Therefore, I am unaccountable. The excuse of the religious, too, is that they say to themselves, well, there are worse people than me, and therefore I'm not that bad. I'm relatively speaking good. Well, there are many other excuses that people make to live a life less than God designed, less than he has on offer, fullness of life. But ultimately, according to Paul, they all boil down to one or other of these terrible twins of rationalization, one religious, two non-religious. They jostle together to avoid truth. First, we all have them in one way or another and use them to avoid truth in one hand and then in the other. 
So the religious person looks around at other people doing bad things and says to themselves, well, at least I'm not that bad and therefore I must be good. There are worse things, they say, with a shrug of indifference. The non-religious person looks up and sees no compelling evidence, they think, for God and therefore carries on living their lives as they would want to live them anyway because they do not want to think that they could be accountable to any kind of higher power for their lives. There's one very funny Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. Calvin is speaking to his imaginary friend Hobbes and they're outside in a beautiful winter bright winter's day and they're building a snowman outside and Calvin says uh, to Hobbes this, he says, oh, I should be doing my homework of course right now and Hobbes looks down at Calvin, he's standing a little above him, he looks down questioningly and, and Calvin then continues talking to Hobbes, he, he says, but the way I look at it, playing in the snow is a lot more important. Out here I'm learning real skills that I can apply throughout the rest of my life. And Hobbes sort of, you know, looks down at him, such as, Calvin replies, procrastinating and rationalizing. <laughs> the uh, MetLife Insurance Company received these real excuses, uh, I researched and discovered. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car and vanished. As I reached an intersection, a hedge sprang up, obscuring my vision. And my favorite of them all, the pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran over him. (laughs) Well, our rationalizations of avoiding commitment to God are more sophisticated, but that does not mean that ultimately they are better, according to the Apostle. Uh, The counselor Paul Tripp put it like this, and I'm quoting from him now. He said, your theology won't always work toward your obedience because your use of theology is dictated by the condition of your heart. If your heart is not submitting to the plan of God, you will actually use your theology to justify things that should not be justified. In other words, one, the religious person takes what they know about God and uses it to avoid what they know to be true about themselves. This is moralistic religionism rather than authentic faith in Jesus. It's passing judgment on others because they do terrible things that we could not imagine doing in our own right minds. Without realizing that by passing judgment, we are saying that God is judge and therefore we also live by his standards and we are also under his assessment. We too. We excuse our lack of genuine commitment to God by means of accusing others' lack of genuine commitment to God. We divert the arrows of conscience by attaching them to the bow of condemning other people. This is the excuse of religious moralism. They are bad. Therefore, I am, relatively speaking, good. And therefore, I don't really need to be fully committed to a Savior called Jesus. The non-religious excuse, uh, too, is that God is unknowable and therefore I am surely unaccountable to any such imaginary being. 
Well, it too can appear quite sophisticated from time to time. William Faulkner said this, Ingenuity was apparently given to man in order that he may supply himself in crises with shapes and sounds with which to guard himself from truth. Well, that's the process that Paul is describing in chapter 1, our ingenuity in avoiding God. In one Netflix TV series, a beleaguered congressman goes to church to pray. He stands before the altar. Eventually, he kneels, and he starts to ask if God would listen to him, even if they are not often on speaking terms. After a brief dialogue... The congressman concludes that there is no God and he's just praying to himself. And so he goes to the back of the church, he lights a candle, extinguishes all the other at the back in that little place where they light candles, but his candle. If that congressman could but have looked at himself from a distance, he would have found the irony of him going to a great cathedral only to pray to himself. Intense. If there is nothing but me, then there's no reason to go to church to pray. But God has left His footprints everywhere, in nature, in conscience. He who has a good conscience usually has a bad memory, as someone joked, in friendships. In laughter, in light, in suffering, perhaps most of all in suffering, which as C.S. Lewis famously said is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Perhaps it is his way of speaking to you recently. It's all a bit like the humorous story of famed orator Daniel Webster. One day Webster's father was absent from home and left Daniel and his brother Ezekiel with specific work instructions. On his return, their father found the work, however, still undone. What have you been doing, Ezekiel? The father asked him first. Nothing, Ezekiel replied, which is exactly the point. Rounding on Daniel, his father asked him the same question. Daniel, who had become the famed orator, asked him the same question. Well, what have you been doing, Daniel? He asked of uh, Daniel Webster. Quick-witted as ever, as he would prove later in his life, Daniel Webster replied, I've been helping Ezekiel. Certainly few feel that they're doing the equivalent of saying that their homework was undone because it was eaten by the family dog. But in an ultimate sense, Paul is saying their rationalizations are barely better. The way that Paul seeks to show the flimsy nature of those excuses that so many of us employ to avoid finding life that is life to the full in commitment to Jesus is by comparing the non-religious and the religious rationalizations and therefore showing that both Jew and Gentile alike, both are equally mere excuses. 
In his novel, Anna Karina, Leo Tolstoy articulated this dynamic in his age. These principles laid down as invariable rules that one must pay a card sharp but need not pay a tailor, that one must never tell a lie to a man but one may to a woman, that one must never cheat anyone but one may a husband, that one must never pardon an insult but one may give one, and so on. These principles were possibly not reasonable or not good, but they were of unfailing certainty. And so long as he adhered to them, Vronsky, one of the characters in the novel, uh, Vronsky felt that his heart was at peace and he could hold his head up. Rationalizations. And once we begin to see them, we realize that we have no excuse. And of course, it is a kind thing for those rationalizations to be exposed. Kind. I once had a psychiatrist friend who told me of a colleague of his, another psychiatrist, who was refusing to seek help for various conditions that this colleague was facing. Expressing his frustrations, my friend said this to me, why won't he pay the money for therapy rather than pay with it with the rest of his life? Well, in a different sort of way, Paul is trying to show us how God's kindness overcomes our excuses so that we can live lives fully committed to Christ and find the life that is truly life. All this section is designed to do is to show us our need of Jesus and of his saving death for our sins and therefore cause us to believe in him, follow him, and give our lives fully to him. No more excuses. Well, then first are excuses, and then second, how those excuses are overcome by God's kindness. And we're looking particularly at verse 4 of chapter 2. And uh, you'll see there that that verse concludes with the word repent or repentance. And it's a very tricky word these days in church, the word repent or repentance, because So many of us have heard so many bad sermons on repentance or so much sort of manipulative rhetoric about repentance. It's almost become a hackneyed word that means something aggressive or negative or something. And so it's hard for us to understand what Paul's saying in chapter 2 verse 4, that it really is an expression of God's kindness. One way of bringing the terminology of repentance into the 21st century is by a story imputed to the rock star Bono. Bono was once asked, apparently, to describe the difference between pop music and rock music. Of course, he's a rock musician. Bono said that pop music basically makes you feel that everything is okay, but rock music tells you that everything is not okay, but you need to do something about it. Now, whether or not you agree with that description is beside the point, but it illustrates what repentance is saying. Repentance is saying it's time for you to do something about it. Now, God is sovereign. I believe that with all my heart. Otherwise, I would never preach. Before I know that I cannot change anyone's heart. Only God can do that. God is sovereign. But under his sovereignty... Repentance is saying it's time for us to turn back to him by an act of our will, doing something about it. I love the story I first heard in Ireland when I was doing some preaching 
over in that uh, country for a while. A man, was, uh, uh, a man was painting the outside of a church building, the story I was told went. And unfortunately, he ran out of paint. And so instead of going to the hassle of asking for some money to buy some more paint, he decided that he'd just dilute the paint a little bit and keep on painting. Well, he did so, but he still didn't have enough paint, so he thinned it some more, and he kept on thinning it out more and more again until eventually he finished painting the outside of this church building, you see, with this thinned-out paint. And soon those he had completed, there was a massive thunderstorm, and, of course, the paint ran in great ugly streaks down the side of the building, and the man stared in disbelief at the mess that he had made, and then there was a booming voice from heaven that addressed him, repaint and thin no more. Repaint and thin no more. Sounds so quaint, doesn't it? Repaint, thin no more. How can we hear this word, repent? How can we understand that this chapter is an expression of God's kindness? Well, I think there's a Trinitarian structure to verse 4 that explains how God's kindness overcomes our excuses. Let me try and walk us through that together. So Trinitarian, one, God the Father is sovereignly responding to our excuses by letting his creation feel the effects of our running from God and therefore giving us maximum opportunity to run back to God. That is what uh, the riches or the extremity, uh, I, I think, of his kindness means God gave them over. God giving them over, it's a repeated refrain throughout chapter 1, you may have noticed. It's not only an expression of judgment, though it is that, it is also an expression of warning. So when we suffer the consequences of our sin, when God's creation suffers the consequences of its sin, when humanity suffers the consequences of its sin, it is God's way of saying it is not too late when that happens to us. It is a warning. It is saying there is still time yet. The more I thought about it, the more it seems to me the best illustration for and God gave them over is the parable, Jesus' parable, of the prodigal son. See, the son ran away from the father and he was given over to the results of that sin by eating pig husks. And then he came to himself. And what did he realize? He realized the kindness of his father. Perhaps you feel you've been given over to experience the extremity of the consequences of some sin. It's God's way of saying that today, as of now, it's not too late. It's His way of saying, as you munch on the pig husks, come home. I love you. I want you. It is my kindness designed to wake you up, to lead you to repentance, to lead you to be embraced, by my fatherly arms. God the Father to God the Son 
sacrificially bore the consequences of our excuses at the cross and is now patiently giving us time to repent before he returns in judgment. This is, I think, what his forbearance and patience means. It overcomes the excuses of the religious moralist thinking he is too good for God because he is at least not as bad as other people. For who can say that when they look at the forbearance of Christ when he bore our sins at the cross? Oh no, the foot of the cross is a level playing field for us all. It's a level place for us all, religious as well as non-religious. Lecrae put it like this in his call to commitment to Christ in his song, No Regrets. You not a leader because they follow you on Twitter. You not a man based on your age and your gender. If you die tonight, you probably die a boy chasing toys, objectifying these women, thinking they're going to bring you joy. Well, I can't do it like Lecrae. But no more excuses. He who bore the cross for me demands my life. The story is told of a prisoner of war camp. The prisoners were lined up because a shovel or spade was missing. If the culprit did not step forward from the line who had taken this, this shovel, this spade, they would all be killed. No one moved. Eventually, And finally, one man took one pace forward and he was immediately executed. Later, there was a recount and no shovel, no spade was missing. He had taken the blame. Now imagine that and imagine you had taken that spade, that shovel. And someone else died for you. And their family after the war, you discovered, were in need. Would you turn your back on that family? The family of God? No more excuses. God the Father, God the Son, three, God the Holy Spirit leads us to repentance. The Holy Spirit's work is is twofold. It is to convict us of our sin and to convince us of Christ's sufficiency to bear our sin. This is from John 14 to 16. I'm just summarizing that. The Holy Spirit's work is to put the headlights on Jesus. That is to convict us of our need and to convince us that Christ is sufficient to meet the need. To convict and to convince. God's kindness leads us towards repentance. He gives us hope that when we go to God, we will be received with open arms. But we still need to make that commitment. As someone once said, a ship in port is safe, but that is not what ships are made for. Similarly, you are made to sail on the high seas with God, risking your life for Him. You are made for more than a mild life 
of unexceptional indifference. You are made for Him. Perhaps you've heard this before, but have you done anything about it? Are you living a life of no excuses based upon the kindness of God where you are fully committed to Christ in every regard? Perhaps you've heard the one about the repentance of the indecisive man. I used to be indecisive, he said, but now I'm not so sure. Some people's repentance reminds me of that. Perhaps you think you have not the power for a decisive commitment. Well, of course, of course you don't. It is God who leads you to repentance. Perhaps you think that if it is Him who leads you to repentance, it is Him who leads you to repentance, then you do not need to do anything. Well, that's like saying that if your teacher teaches, you don't need to be taught. Or if your taxi car drives, you don't need to be driven. Or if the airplane is flying you to Chicago, you don't need to be flying. It's a contradiction. God's action is to lead us to our response. The famous poem, The Hand of Heaven, puts it well. I fled him down the nights and down the days. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Love, it is found in him. Passion, it is found in him. Truth, it is found in him. Strength, it is found in him. Life. It is found only in Jesus. Well, our excuses then, the terrible twin rationalizations of the religious. (laughs) I'm better than them, and therefore I must be really quite good. I don't really need to commit my life to Jesus. I'm doing fine, thank you. Look at those people over there. We accuse to avoid being brought to Jesus. The religious, the non-religious. God is unknowable and therefore I am unaccountable. It's all overcome by the Trinitarian kindness of God. Fatherly, letting us experience the pig husks. So we come back to Him. The Son, bearing our sin, so we come back to Him. The Spirit, leading us, so we come back to Him. Well, of course, there are people, some people do regret their lives and wish that they were not dying But you do not have to live that way. I first met him when he was a second-hand car salesman. 
I remember chatting to him on the parking lot. He, he did not seem to fit in that line of work somehow. It didn't seem to fit him. I discovered that his father had had affairs when he was growing up and then died when my friend was still young. He came from a religious background, a church-going family growing up, but something had not clicked and he was drifting. I'm not sure precisely when the penny dropped, but at some point God's kindness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit overcame the excuses, both religious and non-religious. And I know he's living a life of no regrets now. Perhaps you would like to do so too. Kindness changes us, you know. I think it was the 19th century Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, who said this. Great preacher. He said, kindness makes a person attractive. If you win the world, melt it. Do not hammer it. Or perhaps you are committed to God, but it's time for you to stop hammering everyone else around you. Kindness. I, I cannot promise that a life of full commitment to Jesus will be an easy life, for it is the path of the cross in one way or another. Jesus did not promise a life committed to him would be easy. There's a missionary to Rwanda that I know who had seen the genocide in that country growing up. He told me of one church where the members were gathered together and killers came in and urged the Hutus to separate from the Tutsis, the two warring tribes. No one in the church moved. They were told again to separate. Do you understand the killers said, we're here to kill the Tutsis, so if you don't separate, we will kill you all. Again, no one moved. Eventually, the pastor of the church stood up and said this, there are no Hutus here, there are no Tutsis. We have all been washed under the blood of Jesus. And they were killed. And we know the story because a few survived. I cannot promise you an easy life. But I can promise you a life worth living. Much more than mild, unexceptional, religious nominalism. Aren't you fed up with that? A life of no regrets is on offer, no excuses. Of course, you may think that all this is nonsense. There's a story of well-known evangelist Michael Green when he was taking a mission at Oxford University. He was sitting next to an Oxford professor, and together they were listening to some young student give a testimony about how God had changed their life. And at one point, as this young man was speaking, the professor leaned over to Michael Green and whispered to him, You know, I don't believe a word of this. Green thought for a moment and then looked back at the professor and smiling replied, I know you don't, 
but wouldn't you love to? Sometimes the sheer riches of the kindness of God is enough to break the hardest of hearts. I pray it would for you before it is too late. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness and warnings as you told the story of the prodigal son. Jesus, perhaps there's some here for whom that is their experience. They have run away from you. And they're only here this morning because they realize there must be something better. I pray that you would encourage them with a sense of welcome and warmth. That you are a Father God who will run to embrace them when they come home. Lord Jesus, there are some of us here who are committed to you, but we hold back with various religious kinds of excuses. We're frightened, perhaps, of what you would do with our lives if we really committed ourselves to you financially, uh, personally, in terms of our time, what would happen to our career if we served, if we told our friends about Jesus, if we stood up for what is right at college or at work or at home. We certainly pray for the wisdom that we need, that will be canny as well as pure and innocent. So give us that wisdom. But we pray also specifically this morning for the courage to commit our lives fully to you, knowing that you have fullness and life and offer for those who do. So we pray these things for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.